Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 16th, 2013, and my guest is Tyler Cowan of George Mason University. He blogs at Marginal Revolution, and his latest book is Average is Over, Powering America Beyond the Age of the Great Stagnation. Tyler, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Our topic for today is your new book, Average is Over. It is, for me, your most thought-provoking book. It outlines a rather daring and daunting possible future for America and the world, a mix of great optimism with, it seems to me, some pessimism. So let's start with the title, Average is Over. What are you saying with that title? This is a book about the increase in income inequality in America, and it's trying to trace through that trend and see what it looks like 10, 20 years out. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And what's driving it? So Average is Over is getting at exactly that increase in inequality of income. You're really suggesting that there's a going to be a bimodal distribution, though. You're making a much stronger suggestion than just income's going to get less equal. Well, I think over time, a lot of people in the middle class, in fact, most of them, they will either grow into being really quite wealthy or they will have more stagnant incomes in the lower middle class range. So I think what we thought of as middle class America in, say, the 1960s will be viewed as a historical anomaly. Uh, Lots of people will benefit greatly from this change, uh, but not quite everyone. So I think you know I'm somewhat of a skeptic about the inequality data, that I think it's distorted by changes in family structure, immigration, and other other factors. And that boils down ultimately to some statistical discussions we don't have to have. But if you're going to push your viewpoint that this is a, a real trend, an important trend, what do you see as a causal, underlying causal mechanism for this growing inequality? And in particular, the stagnation of the, of the middle and the, and the bottom. So I don't have any trouble with the idea that the highest incomes are going to get higher than they were before relative to the median or the mean because of globalization, technology, a lot of reasons. But you're saying something much stronger than that. So where, why do you see that happening? Well, let me first point out that even if you're skeptical about the macro data, There's a lot of micro or sector-specific evidence that inequality is going way up. So the Harry Potter books or Da Vinci Code, they earn much, much more than bestsellers of the past. But if you look at average advances for authors, those are in fact way down. If you look at the economics profession, at the top end, people like Krugman Mankiw, again, earn much, much more than their predecessors, but there are more adjuncts being hired than tenure-track professors. So I think you can look at the economy sector by sector and in most sectors, you see some version of this. So it's yeah, I'm not cha- just- yeah, I'm going to challenge that. I don't, I don't find that compelling at all. I'll tell you why and see what your, what your response is. So it's true. And this is my point about the technology and globalization. It's the argument that Sherwin Rosen and um, Ed Lazier made in their Economics of Superstars paper that the highest people at the top of their profession, whether it's sports or the arts, are, are going to make a lot more than they used to because of that phenomenon. But you make, your second point is the one I dispute, which is you said, well, 
uh, advances for the average advance is going down. I'm not surprised at that. And that's because a lot more people are writing books. So a lot more people are coming into the distribution, pulling down the average, but the people who would have been there 20 years ago could be making more than they did before. So I think that's a very distorted measure. Well, I would say, as I often have, that I'm a happiness optimist, but a revenue pessimist. So if you look at the total amount of revenue going into authors' advances, again, if you take away that top part of, part of the market, I think that's definitely down. I think you see the same thing in the music sector. Uh, but just to turn to the main question I think you wanted to ask me, two of the driving forces, one of them is simply the Internet and automation and the general rise of a new class of machines connected to computers and smart software. I think those extend the reach of the most productive workers, and I would include smartphones and cell phones and better communications in that. So there are many more global markets, and the people who are truly talented can sell to more people and sell to them with better marketing. That accounts for some of the increase on the upper end. But at the same time, automation is replacing some jobs, uh, but we don't have the same kind of flexible economy that we've had in many times past. And I think on net, you'll see labor force participation rates are falling, so fewer people are working, and thus we're getting a lot of stagnation with a lot of the other income classes. The other driving force behind this, I think, is globalization, that there are pressures which equalize wage rates of labor across countries. So there have been fantastic gains in China, India, many other places, as you know, uh, much of this is positive sum, but I think a lot of it is actually zero sum. And there's a kind of arbitrage being applied to the price of labor as there would be to, say, the price of apples. Well, when the price of labor goes down worldwide, excuse me, when it goes up worldwide, but <clears throat> well, wait a minute, it's going to go down worldwide, but up in the places that were low, right? So, so there's That's been... right. So globally, inequality is way down, but within virtually every country, inequality is very much up. If you look at the United Kingdom or Germany, you'll find most of the growth there has been in lower wage jobs. Uh, and again, the typical or median wage over the last 10 to 12 years has slightly been going down. So you paint a very interesting, really incredibly interesting uh, vision of how smart machines might change our lives. And we can talk about the implications. We're going to talk about the implications of that. But I think for most people, they've only seen the tip of the tip of the iceberg. They they might use a GPS uh, device in their car or on their smartphone. They might ask Siri on their iPhone for directions or for a recommendation for a restaurant or a movie. And that's fun. It's kind of cool. It, it's not, it's not life-changing. Uh, but you see some rather extraordinary things coming very soon when smart devices get married to big data or other types of information technology. Talk about some of the things you see coming. Driverless cars are coming fairly soon. They basically work now. We need to set up a legal and regulatory environment. That will take a while. But the technology works. This will ease commutes. It'll mean cars can drive much faster. Cities can spread themselves out more. It will reshape a lot of economic activity. And, of course, there'll be driverless trucks, other kinds of driverless vehicles. This, of course, will eliminate uh, a lot of jobs, create some others, but it will really be a big change in our lives. The artificial intelligence program, Watson, is now being applied to medical diagnosis. In less than five years and maybe less than two, 
This will be online. I think rapidly the price, whatever it is, will fall. And there will be very high-quality medical diagnosis available to a lot of people, no matter where they're located, even if they're not uh, very well off in terms of income. In general, a lot of service sector jobs are now being automated, a lot of what legal assistance used to do. Uh, it's possible now that you have artificial intelligence programs which can grade essay exams, which is what you and I have spent a chunk of our lives doing. So I think there's been uh, a series of related breakthroughs in smart software which are really going to change the job market. Now, some people, we have more to say about this. You have a lot more to say about it, and we'll continue to get into it. But some people, um, Robin Hansen on Econ Talk in the past and Ray Kurzweil, have a very different vision than yours of what this growth in artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, whatever you want to call it, how it might affect our lives. So quickly lay out their vision and why you uh, dispute it. Well, the Ray Kurzweil view is, you know, within 50 or so years, we'll all become computer uploads. Our brains will be uploaded into computers. I just find that very, very hard to believe. I think it's a new kind of secular religion. Uh, Robin believes that too, but he also believes that something akin to robots will basically only lower wages because robots will compete with humans. I would stress much more that humans can always complement robots. I'm not saying every human will be good at this. That's a big part of the problem. But a large number of humans will work very effectively with robots and become far more productive, and this will be one of the driving forces behind that inequality. We're not just going to be used as uh, an energy source for them as they suck us dry or whatever. You're, you're not that pessimistic. No, uh, you know, again, I think uh, pessimistic and optimistic. They're words everyone in this debate is applying too quickly. I think in this debate, the radical thing to do is to write a book which isn't trying to be too normative. It's just trying to think through what will things be like. And by keeping the evaluation at much more of a distance, I think we'll actually get further with the analysis. Yeah, I actually enjoyed that a great deal. I'm, it, it does lull one into thinking that uh, you're just describing a, it's just a history book that happens to have fallen into our hands today. So th there is a, there's a little risk there, but it's, it's, very, uh, it's very provocative. Um, I've had people confront me in outraged fashion. How can you accept all of this? Yeah. <laughs> but look, as a writer, you know, the point is to try to figure it out as best you can. And at the end of the book, if one wants to say, let's not go that route, well, that's worth a discussion. But the notion that at every intermediate point, you have to inject your own feelings of emotional outrage, I think has become one of the worst features of this whole debate. Uh, it cuts across other debates too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, what you've learned as a chess fan, uh, and you write at some length, and at first I was rather taken aback by this, but I grew to find it quite fascinating. Uh, you write at some length about the role of machines in chess tournaments, and particularly in freestyle. Talk about that and why it's a nice uh, potential template for future human-machine interaction. Freestyle is a form of chess where a human teams up with a computer, so if you play human and computer against computer, uh, for the most part, human and computer, if it's a practiced human, uh, will beat the computer. So even though computers per se are much stronger than humans at chess, it's the team that's stronger than either one. And I think this is a good metaphor for what a lot of our job market future will look like. So there's a big chunk of the book that looks rather closely at freestyle chess and tries to see what we can learn from it. The thing I found most provocative about that is that uh, the best freestyle teams 
do not necessarily have the best human chess players. In fact, that could be something of a handicap. That's right. The really good human players are too tempted to override the computer and substitute in their own judgment. The best freestyle teams are they're quite epistemically modest. Uh, the human or humans involved. And what they're really good at is asking questions. So they'll run two or three different computer programs and then just check on where do those programs disagree. And then they'll probe more on those points. And that's what the humans do well, that the computers, at least not yet, uh, are unable to copy. So, so it's knowing what questions to ask that has become the important human skill in this freestyle endeavor. So applying that to the medical diagnosis example you gave earlier, it suggests they don't want the guy or the woman who had the best um, uh, grades in medical school or the most arrogant, which is often the, in today's world, can be the best doctor. I might want the most modest doctor, or not the most modest, but someone who is willing to let the diagnosis provided by the machine be the, uh, be the quote where I want. That's right. So uh, wisdom and modesty will become much greater epistemic virtues in this future scheme. I think that's overall a good thing. Uh, we should revere those qualities more, and we will have to looking forward. You also have a lot to say about conscientiousness and advantages that women might have over men. Explain. Well, one thing we're going to get uh, very good at in the future, you see it now, is just measuring quality. So whether it's doctors, lawyers, economics professors, there's always a, a randomized control trial now. There are always numerical ratings. Everything has a Yelp rating or an Amazon rating or something. And, you, you know, we all know these are highly imperfect, but basically they're still better than not being informed at all. So it's like in the future, there's a credit score uh, for everything. So people who test well young, I think, will have a lot more invested in them early in their lives, early in their careers, and they'll have a head start. And another way to think of this is I think, you know, within five years, the world's best education will be available online and it will be free. Arguably, that's already the case. But the question is, who is there to learn from this? It's the people who are disciplined and conscientious which is still distinct from just raw intelligence. Now, if you ask the question, if you compare men to women, on average, which group is less conscientious? Uh, I think you have to hand that one to the men, yes. at least uh, the lower tail of the distribution. So I think we already see in higher education and many other areas, women doing better, and not just better because there's less prejudice, they're just outright doing better and outcompeting the men. And I think that trend will be magnified by this increased uh, value for conscientiousness. Explain again why conscientiousness is going to be more important than it is now. There will be many more free resources, and there's already a lot. So the person who's just disciplined enough to sit down and say, listen to Econ Talk podcasts or read blogs or go through Khan Academy or whatever it is they ought to be doing, that will be there for them free. So what you'd call the shadow value of conscientiousness in economic terms will be much, much higher and you see that these you know, students in India, they take Coursera classes, and they're brilliant, but they're also really determined to work hard, and they're outperforming in general a lot of these top Stanford students, and that's being measured and picked up, and those people, I think, will do very well in this new order, and again, that's a case of conscientiousness paying off. And I guess it's not just the advantage of being disciplined to sit in front of the computer on your own time, but it's also the fact that possibly it'll be harder to get somebody to uh, be drilling you and pushing you face-to-face. -face. That's right, especially for people with lower incomes. But the free things will be there, uh, and the people who are maybe 
brilliant in some strange way, but need to be in the middle of uh, a lot of motivation and pushing and peer effects, uh, those people may well be worse off. So you have a description in the book of something I might I thought of as Siri on steroids or Google Glass run wild. Um, you're in a negotiation and, and your phone vibrates or your glasses send you a signal that says um, the person's lying. Uh, it encourages you to kiss your date because her temperature's changed and you're, something sensed it that you're wearing or carrying. Um, what I found fascinating about that, I'm a little skeptical about its accuracy, but that's okay. Some of it's definitely coming. I, I really was interested in your point about the cultural challenge we face with these kind of devices. No, I think we'll record a lot more than what we're doing. We'll measure a lot more. And again, when your smartphone tells you, uh, you know, to kiss your date or whether someone's lying, the point is not that this is perfectly accurate. It just has to be a little bit better than you would do on your own. So you'll walk into a Whole Foods and your smartphone will tell you, here are the five things on sale. It will tell you, talking to your refrigerator, these are the three items you throw out and don't really finish eating. It will give you a lot of advice. It will, one way or another, communicate to you the content of reviews. So it's like you'll be going around through life with uh, all of recorded intelligence available at your fingertips, if you're willing to listen. But you suggest that, that the cultural transformation might be a little bit challenging for some of us. We might not be so willing to listen. I think we're all a bit reluctant to become so subservient to computers and to, to software programming. And those people who are not, those people who can listen yet without losing their sense of self, without using, losing their inner propulsion, I think that would be a highly propitious mix uh, of character qualities to have. But I think a lot of smart people, again, they'll try to do too much themselves, like some of the lesser freestyle players, and they'll end up getting in a lot of trouble. They'll be outcompeted by the wiser and more modest individuals. Most of this sounds pretty great. Uh, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is going to make life more fun, um, maybe more silly, uh, maybe more gadget centric, but a lot of it's just going to be pleasant. Uh, like GPS, it's mostly exactly. an advantage, right? Right. Of course, not perfect. Occasionally, it takes you down a one-way street, uh, or or takes you on a, a detour that, that was not necessary, but somehow it thinks it is, or roads have changed. Uh, the, all those things are going to happen, and as you point out, there will be a little bit of an arms race. The person who wants to lie will maybe have, uh, be wearing a, an, a, a bag of ice uh, on them somewhere to keep their temperature down. And there will be ways that or their phone will chill them or whatever. We don't know what will actually happen, but uh, there may be um, all kinds of interesting market forces at work in these equilibria. We don't know how it'll actually pan out. But most of these things are really great, right? You know, as you go by the the movie theater, it says, you'll like this one or whatever whatever the sure. things that, that are there. The, but the real but issue... There's something impressive about it because all the mistakes you make get recorded, they get measured, and we're not used to that. We're, we're used to a lot of things being overlooked. Like I give the example of a guy who's on a date with a woman, and like he's a nice guy, but he just smiles a bit too long at the waitress. And her smartphone tells her that afterwards. The so day, we're programmed the to hold things against people. And we're going to have to back out of that much more. I don't think that will be so easy. No, I agree with that. Uh, we see it happening now, right? It's um, I, I One think, wrong tweet and you get in a lot of trouble, right? Yep. You can make a fool of yourself. You lose your job. But the point I'm trying to make is that those things are all 
you know, I think it's an incredibly interesting time to be alive. And I think the health applications are going to be mind boggling. And uh, the driverless car, you know, might save 35,000 lives potentially if it's done well the, and allow us to drive, get places faster while saving lives. Uh, those are just wonderful, glorious things. The average is over part of the book, though, is not so attractive. Who are the people who are going to lose from this technology? Who are the people, this advance, these advances in technology? Who are some of the losers and why do you think they're numerous? Say that right now you're someone who's a truck driver which often is a reasonably well-paying job. You don't get rich doing it, but uh, you're not lower middle class if you have a good truck driving job. And over time, all of these vehicles become self-driving. We'll see more and more workers basically crowded into service sectors. Uh, there'll be more people trying to do things like be yoga instructors or be personal servants. And as those kinds of jobs grow, I don't see the corresponding wage growth. I think there'll be a fair amount of stagnation, uh, basically in service sectors for people who are not extremely well-educated at working with technical material or computers. Well, I guess the issue would be you'd think the demand for a really good yoga instructor would go up from these very wealthy people who have all these great productivity enhancements, right? So I think the question is, will you not even need a yoga instructor because your phone will tell you or your Google Glass will tell you what uh, posture to be in and, and show you a, a 3D hologram of it in front of you. So it's even better than the, than the yoga instructor. In fact, as you said, it'll tell you when you did it wrong. It'll be talking to the cameras in the room and it'll give you advice on how to do it better the next time, which the yoga instructor may struggle to do in a room of, of 20, of 20 uh, students. Um, if that's the future where, where the yoga instructor can't make a living, I agree with you. Uh, you know, you suggest at one point that really rich people like to be fawned over and, and complimented and people who are good at that will be able to make a living for sure. And I, you know, I agree with you, but that's that's very depressing. Um, most of the tasks that really wealthy people used to pay for, they don't pay for anymore. They don't have to have um, a cook because uh, they can do takeout. Takeout's cheap sure. now. They don't have to have a dishwasher because they have a dishwasher. They don't have a person who washes dishes. We all are rich that way. That's great. That's been a glorious transformation of the middle class, not of the upper class. So, but you're suggesting that that that's going to come to an end. Well, I think there'll be a lot more jobs in service and restaurant sectors, but except at the very top, I don't think those jobs will pay so well. There's a lot of competition to do them. Indirectly, there's competition from overseas, which will only get stronger. Uh, so I don't see significantly rising wages in those sectors, and I see more workers flowing into them because of these other jobs disappearing. So that's the downside in my view. But let me just note, I think there's some much longer term, which I'm not trying to forecast in the book, but say 50 to 70 years out, where you get enough neat new stuff that it's almost like scarcity isn't there anymore. So I think the very long-term picture is quite utopian. But, you know, go back and look at the Industrial Revolution. Let's say that starts in the 1770s or 1780s. In England, real, real wages are not going up at a high pace until the 1840s. So there's there 50 to 70 years of transition, where even free market economists like David Ricardo are, are writing about the machinery question and worried about this. But it turned out okay. I guess. Well, after 50 to 70 years, and I think 
50 to 70 years out, our own scenario will be much more utopia than dystopia. But say 20 to 30 years out, uh, I think it's much more mixed. Yeah, that's where Robin Hanson disagrees with you, I guess. I guess he argues that, that the 50 to 70 year scenario is even worse. Well, he doesn't think it's bad. He thinks if we're all computer uploads earning subsistence, but there's a lot of us, that's just fine. I'm not sure how to adjudicate that ethically. <laughs> But it's fair to say most people don't like the idea when they hear it, right? No, they don't. No, it's not. A, it's but Robin not a, <laughs> thinks it's great. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that. Uh, <clears throat> he does, yes. Oh, okay. It is utopian for him. Okay. Uh, maybe that's what he'll get. Uh, maybe it'll be a choice in, in, in the world, but maybe the rest of us will be able to do something different. I don't know. One area you do see um, a lot of potential for is coaching and, uh, and marketing. And explain, first of all, what you mean by marketing. You don't mean what I think what everybody else might mean by it. So talk about what you mean by marketing and then coaching and why they're both likely to be very useful. Coaching and marketing, they're both forms of motivation. And one thing I think computers are not close to good at is, is motivating us. So you can write a program to send yourself text messages, and that does a bit. But what really motivates us is what inspires us, human role models, examples, stories, narratives. Th things that are quite powerful emotionally, you know, teachers we, we met when we were young. And I think those will be uh, big growth sectors. And in terms of marketing, imagine, say, that 20% of America is millionaires or even richer. There'll just be that much more competition for their attention because attention is still scarce, but they'll have a lot more money. So in, in competing for their attention, basically in different ways, we'll all be doing more marketing. And I see marketing as really the single biggest growth sector of the future, viewed in these somewhat unusual terms. Of course, we're all marketing <clears throat> these days in all kinds of unusual ways already because of course, attention scares. Seven, yeah, that's right. And that will become more scarce because the number of hours in a day will not really go up. Yeah, yeah and the two eyes problem. You only have two. It's awkward. You can't see behind you. Um, You'll get that extra hour in your driverless car. So – in that sense, we'll augment the supply of attention somewhat, but I think the supply of goods and services will outrace that effect. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Uh, let's talk about games. You have some interesting things to say about uh, games and the application toward education. Well, if you ask, you know, in what sphere of modern life has education really succeeded? I think it's gaming. These games are incredibly complex. When I look at them, I feel they're too complicated for me. I could never learn them. But the people who are interested, the game itself teaches people how to play. It's all done by software and, and very often online. And it seems it really works. They teach you in steps. They make it, you know, hard enough to be interesting, but easy enough that you feel you're making progress. And in my view, the big educational breakthrough has already come with games. It's just a question of how do we apply that to educating everyone else to do other things. And we're far behind on that. What are some of the ways that might... Um that might be applied? Well, imagine an intro to economics textbook, but structured more like a game where you move on to different levels and maybe you capture pieces or you acquire points and there's a competitive angle. And I'm not saying everyone has to do it that way, but I think there's really a big chunk of people who get interested in games who would otherwise say never be interested in medieval history or battles or whatever else, but the games get them interested and I think that's a big frontier for education, where we've actually solved the problem. We don't quite even know we've done it yet. Now we just need to apply what we've already learned. And do you think that's coming? Do you think, uh, you know, there are a lot of, you've alluded to a number of 
successful, modestly, modestly successful, it's early, but modestly successful online educational activities, Coursera, the Khan Academy, um, and EconTalk. Um, do you think EconTalk as a game would do better? I'm not sure how we would make EconTalk into a game. You could make the testing of it into a game. Uh, but if you think of big intro courses in subjects like English economics, where a lot of people take them, uh, I don't see why it isn't profit-maximizing to have a gamified version of those classes, which maybe, you know, a third of students would choose to opt for, and they do it as a game. And I think they would learn the material very well with a lot of immediate feedback and enjoy it a lot more. So, yes, I think we will do that pretty soon. Uh, a lot of people would, already, would say that undergraduate education is a game. Uh, the grading system and how you pick your classes and how you pick your professors is a game. But you're talking about something a lot more um, gamey. Yeah, that's gaming it to be easy or to be a kind of fraud. Uh, this would be an actual true game uh, as chess is a game or, you know, Worlds of Warcraft is a game. And you actually play it uh, in your spare time, which has now become your study time. And uh, that's what keeps you interested is the competitive and gaming aspects. Yeah, I'm not sure that, although I agree with you that you learn something about uh, medieval life from, from these various games or, or warfare, or violence, um, strategy, and so on, it's not obvious to me that you could turn your intro literature class or econ class into a game. Uh, I think that's part of the reason it hasn't happened. It's not the only reason, obviously. There's a lot of other entrenched uh, forces, and you... you um, you sound very Smithian in the book about your view of the education industry as an insider, just as he did in The Wealth of Nations. He had some not-so-positive things to say about the vested interests of professors. Um, but I, I suspect that's going to be challenging. You know, a, a top-level game today, private companies might spend $200 million on it, which is really a lot. Now, are companies right now ready to spend $200 million creating a gamified version of, say, an introduction to calculus class, I think until they know it will be accredited and accepted, uh, they're reluctant. Uh, but I do see the gains from trade there, and I think there will be multiple ways of learning all of these topics, which will compete with each other. Probably no one will win out. Different people learn according to different styles. But I think the main styles you know, will be turned into reality. They'll be like Khan Academy style. They'll be gamified style. They'll just be narrative chat style. They'll be listen to podcast style and so on. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, talk about the future of economics teaching generally um, and, and the profession. You have, you, have, uh, you have a section on that. Talk about what you think is coming. Well, I think, as you know, in the United States, what, 78% of students go to state universities of some kind and really, most of those institutions feel squeezed by budget. So the idea that each of these schools will support a full line of tenure-track faculty, I think, is coming to an end. I think the top schools will. The top schools actually will do more. They'll fund more superstars. But again, there'll be this thinning out. Uh, I think in some ways, this will damage research. It will be harder to be a successful researcher in the middle of the sector. I think there'll be demands for professors to teach much more. The professor will work in conjunction with online programs, and the people who are the best teachers will not necessarily be those who know the most economics, but will be more like tutors. Like, what can you do to motivate your students to spend time with those online programs? 
and you see this already in Hong Kong and in South Korea, there's a very active private tutoring sector, and the best tutors can earn millions of dollars a year selling their services. And again, they're not Nobel Prize winners. They're, they are geniuses at motivation. Yeah, that, that's a huge part, I think, of high school education, certainly, is is the ability to motivate um, adolescents to stay focused. I think that's a huge part of why face-to-face in high school is, is still necessary to some degree. And, and you're even the only the most dedicated and conscientious students are going to be able to to take uh, online classes in, in, in their entirety. And they're also going to be superstars who present the material, right, who do the online classes. They're, those people are going to make a lot of money. Great teachers, tutors slash motivators are going to make a lot of money. The beautiful thing to me is there won't be as many of them and the average quality will be much higher. I agree with than what, that. Than what we have now. Than what we have now. Yes. Um, but at one point you talk about the role of, of empiricism in economics and you, I don't have the exact quote at my fingertips, but you talk, talk about something about the typical uh, good economics paper of 2013. You see economics potentially moving in a very, and you see it has already moved into a very different mix of theory and, and empiricism. Describe it. In my view, there aren't really any new theories left in economics. I don't think we'll discover it 20 years or five years down the road. I think we have most of the core theoretical ideas. We can argue about their relative importance. But great papers today are mostly, what data set did you find? They're not from mining or remining publicly available data sets. That's already been done to death. It's people working in areas like development economics, finding or creating their own data, and then doing something creative with it. So this, I think, will continue. Uh, I think also finding data sets is something machines uh, cannot do very readily. So that will remain the province of humans for the foreseeable future. And we'll have a completely empirical profession. And I see already in young graduate students, a lot of them, they just don't learn standard old line like Chicago School, UCLA microeconomics. It's a kind of dying art. I agree. The question is, is, is what is replacing it, um, which is... I'll quote a unnamed uh, professor who told me that when he studies the labor market, he doesn't have any preconceived theories. He just listens to the data. He just says what he concludes, whatever the data concludes. So it's 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 theory free, but it's it's better because it's it's just what the numbers say. And I find that an untenable vision um, because the numbers are very loud and cacophonous and say whatever we want him to say. Uh, and I, when I think of the best economics paper of 2013, you say it uses a new data set. Uh, I'm not sure we're making a lot of progress. You're much more optimistic than I am, I think, about, say, macroeconomic uh, stabilization policy and our ability to access uh, using data better policies in the future rather than using better theories. You think the data is going to get us there. You want to try to defend that? Well, I share a lot of your worries. I think we've already moved to a realm where what I call common sense theory is strongly undervalued. What's valued is uh, intricate theory, which I think is often of quite low marginal value. Uh, And the notion that the empiricists will just run wild, uh, that worries me as it worries you. But that all said, I do think there's something called big data coming. I think we'll learn a fair amount from it. Uh, I'd like to see what we learn filtered more by common sense theory than what we're likely to do. Uh, I think macroeconomics 
we've actually learned uh, a lot of the key insights. It's just people are never that happy with the stabilization program because there are big losers in recessions and depressions. But I think a lot of countries are responding pretty well to their crises. And in part, the problem is it's just not always possible to do better. Well, I agree with that. I, I, I do feel you give insufficient shrift, which is a word I've never used without the word short in front of it. Um, so I <laughs> apologize for that. But I think you give short shrift, I'll throw it in, to to the knowledge problem that Hayek identified, to the causal density that Jim Manzi talked about on EconTalk. Uh, for example, you talk about, uh, I'll go pick a lawyer and my I'll be hiring a lawyer and my smartphone or device will tell me what, grade, what grades this person learned in, in law school, the quality of their law school, their success rate in, 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 in trial. But those things don't tell us very much. Those aren't very helpful. You know, it's like when people, hospitals publish their success rates, uh, sometimes against their will. And if I, we all understand that if they have difficult cases, then their success rate's not a good measure of their quality. You think we're going to be able to parse all that out and independently control for all those factors? Well, to what extent? Keep in mind that every client in every case will have its own metric of quality. So if you lose a lot of cases taking on poor people, you know, accused of of being murderers when the gun was found on the site with their fingerprints, those cases get graded too, and your your marks are adjusted for that. But again, you don't have to believe these grades will be extremely reliable any more than credit scores are. You just have to think they're better than not really knowing anything. So the grade will be supplemented with personal recommendations. We already use personal recommendations, and I think the grades will be viewed and are viewed, like Yelp reviews, Amazon reviews, sell books, uh, as being informative. And then I think uh, we're down the path of this world where everything's graded. But no, I don't think it's all going to be that accurate. That's one of my worries, actually. Uh, what's Google doing to our brains? With Google, it's easier to forget things as long as you know how to find them. And I, I find, in the case of myself, uh, that's how I operate. I remember fewer facts but I really honed my ability to define the right keywords. Do you think that's a real phenomenon? You, you mean it's real, true? affecting a lot of people? Yeah, it's true for you. I mean, I, I still know Ty Cobb's batting average, um, 367. 367, Yeah, right? I'm yeah. stuck with that. I mean, I can't get rid of it. I'd, love to, I'd probably like to forget it. I'd like to make room for something more useful. When I was 17 or 14, I thought it was extremely important, uh, and I'm stuck with it now. So... Is it really? Do I really have that kind of control to forget stuff? You and I have this privileged position of spanning two different human cultures, pre-internet and post-internet, and that's actually fantastic. And I think we'll go down in history for a kind of richness of our vision because we've lived in both worlds. But I think looking forward, there will be many fewer people who have it stuck in their minds, as the two of us do, that Ty Cobb hit 367. But you don't think my... Uh... You don't think my kids are going to remember it? I think they will remember fewer things. They may remember that one, <laughs> uh, but they'll be much better at finding information uh, than either of us. One thing you didn't talk about in the book is books. Uh, I think about this a lot. I went the other day and I gave away about, um, I don't know, maybe 200 books to the friends of a local library and the organization that's a fundraiser for the library. Uh, I felt better doing that than throwing them out. Um, but I have too many books. 
like you, uh, I get lots of books still. People send me books. Increasingly, they're digital, but people still send me physical books. And I oscillate between thinking, why do I have any physical books? And between thinking, oh, I miss them so much already. And I haven't even, I still, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds still, maybe a few thousand altogether. I've culled my collection very modestly. But I have, I'm in this in-between era that you're talking about. I've got this still love of the physical, and I have this love of the of the Kindle and and my iPad. So, what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think books are going to die out? Physical books? I don't think they'll die. And even you know, vinyl LPs have not died. They're making somewhat of a comeback. But I do think there'll be a big generational shift away from the physical product. There will be a general decline of stuff including the desire to own a home of your own. And we see this in the data. There's lower rates of household formation, lower rates of owning stuff. Uh, and I think we will be viewed as this group of transitional people who were lucky enough to acquire a love of both worlds. Time out. Now, I have fewer books, maybe. Actually, I don't. It's just that the rate of growth is, is slowing. I'm not, I probably still have more books than I had a year ago. But I have a lot more devices. I've got That's right. I have an iPhone, an iPad, a MacBook Air and a MacBook Pro. I'm I'm not particularly proud of that, but I have and I have some leftover ones from the past, just like the books I finished. These these devices are sitting around, they're being used by my kids, they're they're sometimes just decorating my basement. I have a a Mac a classic down there from 1984 uh that I can't bear to throw away. Uh, so I, I don't think you think people are getting rid of stuff. They're getting rid of books, but I don't know if they're getting rid of stuff. Well, what we see in collectibles markets is that overall the prices of collectibles have fallen after the advent of eBay. So that to me suggests a net desire to get rid of stuff, because <laughs> yeah. to get people to hold the same stock, uh, you know, you're reselling them at lower prices. Yep. And I think your children will not own as many books as you do. And Yana does not read as many physical books as I do, not close to it. And she reads a lot. Well, my daughter's a bit of a rebel, but uh, she, she still eagerly acquires physical books. And I sometimes have to carry them out to the car in her suitcase. And, I, and uh, it's, it's, it's awkward. <laughs> but it's, um, I think you're right. I think the next generation and the next two are going to be very, very different in how they, they already are, obviously, in how they consume their information. Um, the book has I went to Best Buy one day ago, and I wanted to buy a CD player. I assumed they would have it. They don't sell CD players to put into a stereo system. I was shocked. Call me naive. Yeah, and so how, you had to find it online somewhere? Correct. It's still there, it's like fine. you said. You can still get it, yeah. it's, and it's reasonable. It's not like, a, it's not like buying a, a, I don't know, a, a new typewriter. I, I don't even know if you can buy a new one. You probably can, but there's lots of used ones. You can find them. And so you were able to still buy one, but they're 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 not extinct; they're just scarce. But the way we will use physical space in our cities is really going to change. There'll be much more about entertainment and looking good, and I think you see a lot of signs of this already, say in Manhattan or San Francisco. As opposed to what? Is, As opposed to what you said, looking good, entertaining. Hasn't that always been the point of a house? Well, cities cities used to have more manufacturing. The 20th century city also is a big home for poor people. And I think 50 years from now, we'll look back on that and be shocked at the notion that so many poor people got to live in Manhattan, Los Angeles, you know, wherever we're talking about. 
because in the future, they'll be in other places with lower rents. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that? I'm, uh, it's an interesting idea. I'm a little skeptical of it, but talk about the talk about your view on the world's most livable cities and where you think uh, population distribution is going in the world of averages over. What I see in the data is that wealthy people want to live in really nice cities, that they're capable of gentrifying them. A city like Washington, D.C. has gotten much nicer, and that pace, if anything, seems to be accelerating. People of lower income are moving out. They're going to the Carolinas or wherever. They're doing fine. It, it gets a lot of them uh, out of high-crime areas. It seems to me uh, to be a better outcome for virtually everyone. But cities are much more expensive, even though real estate as a whole is kind of a flatline investment. You look at quality coastal property, and we are you know, passing the previous peaks of right before uh, you know, when the housing bubble crashed. So we're not producing any more of that land. You know, you and I would probably agree we should deregulate it. You and I would probably agree we're not about to do that. We're not even going to deregulate Fairfax land supply. So that stuff gets more expensive, wealthier, more gentrified, and poorer people will move more to the south, the Midwest, Texas, Oklahoma. And I think there'll be a much more geographic segregation in the United States and elsewhere. Talk about the Texas phenomenon and uh, the relationship between size of government, government services, cost of living, and, uh, and mobility, because you have some interesting things to say. Well, I think one way to get a glimpse into the future is just to ask, where is it that people want to move today? Now, I'm not saying those movers are representative of all Americans, but still you see a net tendency. And the state attracting the most migrants is Texas. Three of the five fastest growing cities in the U.S. are in Texas. And you might ask, what does Texas have? Does it have great weather? Well, probably not. Crime rates are mixed, but they're not great. Uh, public services are probably below average, but they have a fair number of jobs and really cheap housing. And that suggests to me what people really, really like is cash in their pocket, which they are in control of spending. And I know a paternalist may disagree with that. I'm not trying to judge this normatively. But for the future, I predict we'll see more of that, people moving to get more cash in their pockets. Which goes against, I think, the way we think about migration. We think about people moving to Manhattan, Washington, D.C., San Francisco for either the work climate or the uh, air, the physical climate or the beach. All these, most of the things, I said the work climate, that's a bad example, but a lot of non-monetary intangible benefits. Um, you're saying that the, a lot of it's going to be monetary. That's going to drive where people want to live because of the cost of housing. Of course, an elderly migration is the next big story. And uh, the average old person, you know, their net wealth in the United States, when you take, take away the house they own, it's well below $100,000. So they will want to live in cheaper areas for the most part. And as long as these cheaper areas have an okay hospital, I think you're going to see a great deal of migration to them by the elderly. Well, you're correct to point out the importance of that because there's going to be a lot more elderly people. Almost. And budgets will be squeezed. The, the federal budget will be squeezed, private budgets. But they, so, like, uh, but they do, they're willing to pay a premium to be where it's warm. They, they tend not to move to Buffalo, New York, and Duluth, uh, Minnesota, right? They, they do. Sure. So there, there's – obviously there's a trade-off, but I, I don't know. They, they tend now to move – in large numbers to expensive places, not cheap ones. But a lot of America's warmest real estate is also low cost. Places like Oklahoma are pretty warm. Places like Alabama, 
parts of the Carolinas, and those areas are seeing uh, considerable influxes. So not everyone can move to Newport Beach. Of course, maybe everyone wants to. Yeah, no, the, the entry price there is, is, is stiffer. And of course, as you point out in the book, one of the reasons Texas is growing quickly is uh, it, it doesn't have, it, certainly Houston doesn't have the zoning restrictions that other places have, which means that the real estate doesn't get bid up as much when people try to move there. I think we'll just see a lot more effective economization. So wages and measured wealth will become less accurate as real indicators of well-being. We'll just see a lot more uh, variations in terms of the costs people face and the benefits they derive from the Internet. So think of it as kind of an ethical view, similar to a lot of religions, where we've you know, said for centuries, well, money isn't the main thing. It's the values you have and how you treat people and how you take advantage of what you've got. Very corny stuff. But it's true, and I think it's going to become a lot more true. Why isn't it more true already? I'm sorry, repeat that. I didn't hear it. Why isn't it more true already? You know, I, I agree with you that th these are universally important things, that money's overrated, things are overrated. And yet, you're suggesting that, I mean, it's like when people talk about the budget issues, and we'll get into those in a minute, but at the national level, when people say, oh, you know, states are running out of money, or the federal government's running out of money, they spend a lot more than they used to. It's not sure. uh, so. So to suggest that there's some crisis coming that's going to force people out into Oklahoma in greater numbers than, than who used to go to California and, and Florida, I don't. I don't see why. What's going to precipitate that? Well, your, your general question, as you know, long-run elasticities are always greater than short-run elasticities. So in the longer run, there's always more adjustment, and adjustment matters more. Uh, but I think also the world now is changing more rapidly again. So there's a lot of changes that have come along. A lot of them cued or indicated by the financial crisis, and we're just starting to adjust to those. I call it sometimes the Great Reset, but we're not close to being done with those adjustments. Now, with state budgets, that's all about Medicaid. So healthcare costs more, they spend more, but I think other stuff is getting crowded out, like higher education. What has happened? Uh Sorry to pressure you on this sh on short notice, but w what do you think has happened to total spending on uh, education at the state level in the last 10, 20 years? You think it's down? You think it's uh, crowded it really depends, out by Medicaid? It really depends what number you take. Not over the last 20 years, but over the last five years, a lot of systems have seen very large cuts, and those will continue. Well, I think so, that's recession-driven. Uh, I'm not sure that's permanent. In my In my view, it's mostly permanent. Not in every state, and the University of North Dakota is probably going to get a whole lot better. But overall, you look at the University of California system, in relative terms, that's been declining relative to, say, budgets of private schools. Yeah. And I think it's decline. state aid to that is declining in absolute terms. Also in Virginia, there have been and will be cutbacks in terms of percentage of a state university's budget, which comes from the state. So the old average of over 30% will probably end up within, you know, five years as being, you know, 10 to 15 percent. I'm just raising the possibility that it's not Medicaid so far that's pushed that those numbers out, but rather expanding access, actually, for many, many larger numbers of people. Oh, sure. That, too. Okay. Well, let's turn to um, the politics uh, of the future and in a, this um, greater inequality. You have uh, – you don't think the revolution's coming. I don't. I think we'll be. I know we'll be much older, 
and old people are much less likely to rebel, but they love to vote for law and order candidates. Yeah, I love that. That's a great insight. It's uh, undeniably true. As inequality's way up, at least according to the numbers I look at, and crime's way down. And an awful lot of people have a hard time accounting for both of those things being true. They expect people to be on view, the barricades. That's right. What people resent are the people who are close to them, their colleagues, people they went to high school with, in-laws. Uh, for the most part, Americans do not resent the wealthy. Uh, academics do, though, I think, and you suggest so as well. Explain why. I'm not sure I know why, but it's as if there are two worldviews competing. One worldview is, you know, the richest people deserve this, more status, and the other worldview is the most academically smart people deserve more status, and there's a clash there. So that is kind of a local rivalry. But for ordinary Americans, like the home of envy is Facebook. Explain. That's where envy blossoms. You look at the people you grew up with, the people you know, you see how well they're doing. If they're doing better than you, you feel bad. That's what I observe. I like your... You're not... Go ahead. But, you know, you're not worried about the, the titans of Silicon Valley. Oh, he earned another billion. I hate that guy. I, I don't see much of that. I like your uh, point about people who worry about inequality as being a threat to the uh, safety of, of the country, that if the 1% keep oppressing the 99%, there's going to be... It, violence is inevitable. And you, you point out why not. Uh, part of it's the age factor, and part of it, as you say, is that... People don't seem to be so concerned about the faceless 1% rather than the 1% near them, whoever they might be. But uh, you also suggested that maybe the people who are claiming this really aren't so worried about it. If they were, they'd have a different mode. They'd have a different focus. They'd be trying to discourage people from being worried about it, right? And they don't. They're the, they go the other way. Exactly. It's as if they're egging them on. Well, they like, do. worry about this, worry about this. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think that is part of it. I, I think um, I think part of the reason we we think we have an inequality problem uh, is uh, is we spend a lot of time telling people we have one, uh, and so they start to think it's true. Uh, and as you point out, I think people look at at the people around them, and in fact, I think they like when rich they like rich people who aren't near them. They, they love looking at reading about Bill Gates's house and and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. They don't find it they don't find it it doesn't enrage them. They find it entertaining. Sure. I think we have a quite genuine jobs problem and, and to some extent an income problem, and those can get mislabeled as inequality problems because it sounds like a similar phenomenon, but conceptually they're quite distinct. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's important to keep them separate. But let's talk about the politics in particular. So you're also not so worried about massive redistribution from rich to poor that might be um, spawned by this bimodal distribution? Well, imagine this future where, say, 15% of Americans are like millionaires. First, virtually all of those people are, are going to vote, but also they'll be very socially influential and politically influential. And I think basically they'll build a coalition with a lot of the elderly, also preserving benefits for the elderly and arguably underinvesting in the poor and the young by a number of criteria. And uh, I'm not saying this is a good coalition, but I think it's our most likely political future. And you see in the world today, Medicare is quite safe and Medicaid is under a lot of fire. So this strikes me as the direction we're headed in. Well, you also point out that a lot of poor people are not exactly um, politically radical. That's right. And a lot of them, when they do how vote... Do you, how do you explain no one... that? 
some of it's common sense wisdom that they don't think radicalism will solve their problems. And of course, that's usually correct. But I think some of it also is just disengagement. That to be a political radical, you need a whole conceptual apparatus, whether it's true or not. And some poorer people have it, but a lot of poorer people just have a more common sense view of the world, again, often for the better. And that means they're not going to end up as radicals. They embrace traditional values. Well, they are trying to put food on the table, which tends to make it harder to have a indulge a, a vast philosophical apparatus. But uh, the idea that they're also more conservative socially and another, at least so far in American history, is an interesting idea. Yes. It bothers people on the left a great deal. They view it as a form of, um, I guess, uh, self-destructive behavior. Sure, but the progressive left is largely in the U.S. an upper middle class phenomenon. As as is uh, you you claim that's true of Occupy Wall Street as well. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think the Occupy Wall Street movement has not had much resonance, and it will have even less resonance if the new slogan has to be "We are the eighty-five percent." Uh, let's close with the topic uh, you don't really talk about, and you, and you wanted to deflect a little bit in the opening of our of our discussion, which is uh, optimism, pessimism. Now you're in the um, you're right now in the top fifteen percent. You're right now in the comfortable working with machines. Hasn't been displaced by machines. Uh, we both understand that the future may be very different for our children, that the advantages that we've given them or tried to give them may not pay out in this pay off in this new world. Uh, we maybe invested for them, gave them things that we thought would pay off in a 2013 world, but in a 2023 world might not be there. Overall, for yourself and for the future generally, how would you describe the future, the near future that we're talking about? With optimism, I mean, you're saying that there's not going to be a revolution, there's not going to be violence on the streets. I think that's a good thing. Maybe other people would disagree, but I think that's a good thing. But it's not a very cheerful vision to me of 15% of the people are really rich and the other 85 are, they've got entertaining phones and they're working for the 15%, keeping them entertained or flattered. Um, where do you see, say, ask it a different way, where do you see the human enterprise going in the near future? Well, I think it will have elements of both utopia and dystopia. We'll have a lot more wealth. There'll be a lot of new and exciting technological developments, which won't just be, you know, metallic machines. There'll be technologies which help us realize what it means to be human or, or to feel emotions or to connect with each other. Uh, more people will be liberated from unhappy jobs. But I also see for a lot of people higher levels of risk, a lot of economic precariousness, a lot of people being underemployed and say, part-time or temporary service sector jobs that they just keep on stringing along. Uh, and that worries me. I think that's also going to be part of the future. My guest today has been Tyler Cowan. Tyler, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. A pleasure as always. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.